Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Pop Culture Podcast. Tyson Popplestone here. Great to have you here. Hey, if you've been around for a while, you might remember today's guest. He was on in late 2021. His name's Alex Pang, and he's the author of the book Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. The book explores the science behind the benefits of deliberate rest and provides practical advice for incorporating rest into our lives. His other book, uh, The Distraction Addiction, examines the impact of digital technology on our ability to focus. He's also the author of the book Shorter, which presents a case for a shorter work week, provides examples of companies that have taken it on board. So we chat about all of those in uh, today's podcast, not just on a, a big corporate level, but we look at it as individuals and creatives and uh, you know whatever it is that you're doing, however it is that you structure your week. I mean, there's some some really good food for thought here. So, uh, hey, he's a well-respected man in the industry. He's written for uh, New York Times, The Atlantic, and he's also given uh, uh, talks at organizations like Google and NASA. So, I mean, the the guy's got some really helpful things to say for organizations who are obviously trying to eliminate excess and, and, and focus on you know how to get more out of their day so really interesting uh podcast really interesting chat hope you enjoyed as much as i did make sure you give him a little bit of love i've listed his books in the description below if you're interested in getting him but for now enjoy this conversation with myself and alex pang so what are you going to tell us tough guys my usual zero nothing The main thing here has been the weather, right? You know, sort of after years of drought, we've had this atmospheric river. So, um, you know, we're sort of alternating between sort of, um, you know, fire season and flood season and drought season. And they're all kind of stacking up one against, uh, one against the other. So that's the, you know, that's what's, that's, that's, that's the main thing coming out of California. But me personally, most of what I've been doing is, um, you know, for the last year, I've been sort of running programs for four day week global, which is that, you know, the nonprofit that sort of advocates for, for, and also helps companies trial four day work weeks. So that's what's been absorbing most of my time and kind of mental bandwidth. I was thinking before uh, before we hit record that you've got a very interesting schedule because for a lot of authors, I, I know that one of the um, prime skills you need is to be able to spend time alone. But mm-hmm. for a man of uh, your schedule, I saw you're also doing a lot of workshops and a lot of face-to-face stuff. So you're getting a little mix of that extrovert, introvert kind of uh, uh, kind of recipe going on. How do you uh, how do you find that balance? Like are you the stereotype of what I imagine an author to be and prefer the time in your office actually doing the writing and the practical stuff or you like being out there in front of an audience and, and sort of uh, speaking about it, breaking it down? I like having something that I think is worth sharing. Um, I think that, you know, or performing for its own sake is not something that's ever especially appealed to me, but I think that the, that, you know, talking, talking about rest, talking about the four day week, it is not hard to see that these are things that, you know, people really need to hear about. And there, there are things, especially in, or of the wake of COVID, the pandemic lockdowns, you know, this moment where we're trying to kind of figure out the future of work and the place that work ought to have in our lives, that these are things that really are worth, you know, worth talking about and talking with people about. It would have been an interesting conversation over the last 18 months and or well, probably the last two years, to be honest, because much like here in Melbourne, a lot of my friends, uh, I'm in a coastal town, which is about an hour and a half from Melbourne, our big city in, mm-hmm. in our state. And a lot of people have had the option to be able to work away from the office 
as a result of what they've experienced the last couple of years. And I mean, the beauty for them is that they can base themselves from home and they've been trying to navigate how to work there effectively. And the question around structuring work timetables seems to have been at the forefront of everyone's minds, especially those in corporate jobs over the last couple of years. But how's that space been for you? Because the whole landscape seems to have changed, mm -hmm. um, which I guess is a challenge for corporations for the way they've structured things, but also an opportunity to start a conversation for a bloke who has plenty to say on the topic. Yeah. You know, I think that the uh, everybody right now is in a moment of sort of trying to you know, trying to make sense of the last couple of years and trying to figure out what the next couple of years ought to look like. And I think that that, uh, that that means a couple of things, right? You know, it is clear that sort of flexible and hybrid work options are here to stay, right? There is kind of too much that people are able to do kind of anywhere now sort of to, or, uh, to simply dismiss that as, or, uh, as a kind of, you know, a temporary thing that we should just, we should just move away from. On the other hand, I am not, I think the only one who's had the experience of, of, you know, during the pandemic of kind of appreciating offices and social life when they go well, right? I think it's, you know, working, working from home and especially seeing my family doing the same thing. Right. My my daughter did her senior year of college from, you know, from her bedroom here rather than at school. You know, all of that has shown that it, as cool as flexible work is that, for, you know, for not just, you know, essential workers or for, you know, people in manufacturing, but for knowledge workers as well, that place real, you know, well-designed places can make enormous improvements in the quality of our work and the quality of our lives. And I think that the challenge that we've got now is to figure out, all right, you know, given the kinds of work that each of us do, um, given or the, the work that, uh, that, you know, a particular company does, what sorts of arrangements, designs of time, designs of working space, designs of or of, you know, designs of events that bring people together for, you know, or for certain purposes. What, you know, how do we, we need to figure out how to think about deploying each of those in ways that, or of, uh, that, uh, you know, that give us time for deep focused work, which often sort of we can do very effectively sort of on our own, um, or of, you know, time for the sort of, collaborative work and engagement that still really happens best when you have people like around, you know, standing around the table, all, you know, all looking at the same prototype or magazine mock-up, et cetera. And what, and when do we, you know, when do we want to choose between one of these and the other and what sorts of schedules and what sorts of spaces can best support that? So, you know, it's a, or I think it is a, it is a, it's a big ask um, with a bunch of moving parts, but I feel like that's the, you know, that's the grand challenge for organizations and for all of us for, you know, for that, for the next few years. So you're, you're looking at more than just the structure of a work week and how to use the time more effectively. Are you actually uh, part of the landscape when it comes to the layout of offices? 
I'm starting to think about that. You know, there are, um, there certainly are people who are far, far ahead of me. But one of the reasons that I am thinking about this is, is that I am beginning to see with, you know, companies I worked with a couple years ago, you know, the, you know, who were moving to shorter work weeks, space is now kind of the next thing that they're thinking about. And, you know, kind of having redesigned, having redesigned working time, the question now is, given how we work now, what should our space be like? Should it be, you know, should it look different from or the, uh, from the offices that we had in 2019 or 2020? And so, you know, as with so many projects, I'm kind of being pulled along by the early adopters who I study and, or of, you know, beginning to take up or of, you know, try to make sense, you know, take up and try to make sense of this issue. Yeah. So what are some of the big differences in regards to sort of your, your classic 1960s style office where <laughs> you've each got your cubicle and you sit there and you do your work and you do that for nine hours and you do it five or six days a week, you go home and recover and do the same again tomorrow. Mm -hmm. In contrast to that, what are some of the standout features that some, um, you know, for lack of a better term, maybe some progressive companies in this particular space are, are using? That's a really good question. You know, okay. So first of all, um, not a cubicle in sight. The good news is that the cubicle is gone and nobody, I think, is trying to bring it back up. Uh, I think that the, you know, even the, you know, and likewise, the open plan office is getting a serious, uh, sort of, you know, a serious skeptical going over as well. You know, and it's uh, uh, what had, you know, what had previously looked like, you know, a, or of a great generator of buzz, et cetera, now feels like just a sort of carnival and amplifier of distraction. And the things that I am seeing are smaller, more tailored spaces, tailored particularly for groups, um, you know, a de-emphasis away from dedicated workspaces for individuals, whether it's the CEO's corner office or order the cubicle for, you know, for order for the new person, um, spaces that, uh, sort of that are explicitly designed to better support collaborative work and sort of cooperation. And that's, you know, for a long time, people have been trying to like work through things like color schemes or, you know, or cool forms of furniture that adapt to or to teams. I'm not seeing groups playing around with that sort of stuff so much as I'm seeing them doing, you know, much simpler kinds of things around having stuff like, you know, or of all, you know, sort of meeting timers, for example, or um, the equivalent of those, the, you know, the recording or on-air signs that studios have that indicate that, you know, you've got a group that's doing work that requires, you know, that uh, requires being heads down and requiring silence. And so, you know, it's a, it's, you know, nothing, nothing yet that would have come out of like a really hip design studio in Palo Alto or Milan. It's really a lot more stuff kind of cobbled together from like secondhand shops and hardware stores that people are, you know, people are putting together and, and wiring up and trying to, or of, uh, you know, and trying to, uh, trying to make work and then, you know, improve, uh, improve incrementally. But I think that the, you know, and so though, you know, that's, uh, you know, those are, those are the main things that I've seen. The one, you know, the one other thing that I've noticed is kind of a pattern of bringing 
bringing the kinds of spaces in which you might have met up with, um, you know, like sort of clients and cafes or something like that inside the office. So there's one, um, one studio in London that I was at recently that, you know, four day week company, they've been doing it for several years. And one of the things that they have, uh, that they've created is a kind of set of really nice couches that when I was visiting there, no one, no one was sitting in because that's where you have meetings with clients. And then over on the side, you have this or uh, this little table from Ikea or John Lewis, not very comfortable, kind of small chairs. And that's where you have internal meetings and you have them there because nobody really, you know, nobody loves that setup. And so it's a physical reminder to keep these, these short, to keep the meetings pointed. Um, and I think that the sort of, and, you know, may, you know, but, you know, it's not where you're going to take someone who you want to impress. Um, so I think that's, you know, uh, so those are, those are the kinds of things that I uh, sort of, that, uh, that I'm seeing so far. Yeah. It's interesting. It's like to compare the modern day workplace or the progressive day workplace to the example I gave out in the start. It's a really funny little thought process because I'm not sure if you saw the, um, it was a, a video. I think it was a TikTok video originally that a Twitter employee posted online of what her day in the office looked like. Mm -hmm. And it was her starting a day with like a matcha latte. And then she would, <laughs> I can't remember every step, but you yeah. think, okay, in terms of quality of performance, there's got to be some kind of middle ground between um, what we saw in the sixties and what we're seeing in 2023 right there. Cause neither <laughs> look like they're the most um, <laughs> effective workplace for actually getting work done. But yeah. I guess, I guess as a, um, a foundation, like when you go into a place is the goal efficiency, is that what you're trying to help the workplace actually trying to achieve? Because for me, I've got a real appreciation for uh, minimalism when I'm focused and when I'm not scattered, mm -hmm. and I've got a really a really big appreciation for time frames. And I learned from you guardrails to managing your time. But I know that my personality is also such that when I start focusing on these things, I'm constantly learning and tinkering, and it's like a never-ending process of refinement. Mm -hmm. So, how do you go? Because I imagine that the companies or the people who are inviting you to come and speak are very, I don't, I don't want to say type A, but I'm trying to think of a word <laughs> around that, a, a, a very uh, results-based kind of group. They're trying to get the right. best bang for their buck when it comes to time. How do you know where to start with yeah. a company that you're going into? The, okay, so you're exactly right, Tyson. They very much are kind of type A companies. Uh, you still have a, you know, even though the four day week movement has become a lot more diverse in the last few years, I am, for example, now doing projects with um, a hospital group and with a police department that wants to move its force to four day to uh, order to four day weeks. The, you know, the majority of them are still like software companies, financial services, professional services, um, you know, ones that attract people who, you know, who, for whom overwork it is has a sort of romanticism that or or is a way of appealing to their you know ambition or you know their sort of desire for order for order for stimulus and in these cases you know and you know consequently all of them are in the same position of being you know being organizations that are really good at attracting great people but also really good at burning them out 
and mm-hmm. that tend toward ways of working that are not especially healthy or sustainable. And I think that you know, for them, the four-day week is appealing partly because it offers a solution to a whole bunch of different problems that they have all at once. Recruitment and retention, work-life balance, burnout, long-term sustainability, or a better you know, sort of walking the talk when it comes to wanting to be an employer of choice or a good place to work. You know, a set of things that you might otherwise have to attack using a variety of different, you know, sort of different initiatives and programs, but which with a four day week, you can sort of deal with sort of all at once. I think that, you know, in these cases, efficiency is important. And how can it not be when you're, you know, when you're trying to do in four days what you're previously done in five? But efficiency is a means to an end rather than an end in itself. Right. The end is giving everybody back a day a week forever. And in order to do that, you've got to do a whole bunch of things in order to sort of use time more wisely to think about time differently and to tighten up all kinds of processes, you know, everything from sort of meetings to um, the way people use project management software to sort of workflows so that they, you know, so that there is less friction, um, there's better communication and collaboration and things work sort of more effectively. But the great thing about it is that, you know, all too often we think of efficiency in work in kind of fairly abstract terms and in ways that detach that efficiency from improvements in our own lives. So, you, know, you can see it, the the, uh, the changes the changes that we make are ones either that or we kind of have to do under vague threat or that you know, are reflected maybe in stock price six months from now right so there's a there's a long disconnect between the stuff that we do on the ground and sort of the the bigger benefits the great thing about the four day week and one of the things in a sense that makes it very kind of efficient as a form of change management is that you see the results immediately, right? Either everybody can finish up the work that they need to do so that they can go, so that they can go home Thursday afternoon and start the weekend or they can't. And so, you know, the feedback is super, super quick and, and the reward is very, very clear. And so that provides a really terrific incentive for people to work together to sort of, re, you know, to heart, to recognize, to attack, and then to share efficiencies. And I think the final important thing is that most of these efficiencies are not like individual personal level ones, you know, no company reaches a four day week because every single person improves their own, you know, sort of their own individual work by 20%. Rather, it's systemic change that accounts for most of it, right? Systemic change and then kind of changes in social norms around things like meetings and technology use and use of communications channels that were, you know, that, uh, that benefit everybody so long as everybody participates and everybody understands the underlying rules. So I think, uh, so, you know, yes, I think that sort of effectiveness and, and efficiency are really, really critical to making a four, uh, to making a four day work week work. And the four day week provides a terrific sort of, uh, terrific 
impetus for and feedback around those efficiency, uh, those efficiency improvements. But it really is very much a means to an end rather than an end in itself. Yeah, I was I was smiling as you were speaking because I I went to a sports doctor about twelve months ago, one here mm. in Melbourne. She's got a reputation for being a hard worker. Everyone who goes and sees her knows what she's like. But I went in and it was like a three month wait. And I got in there and I said, oh, hey, how you been going? She goes, yeah, really good. It's my last day of the week. And it was a Thursday. I go, oh, interesting. So you're working only four days a week now? She goes, yeah, I am. And I said, oh, that's that's great. Like, how have you restructured? She goes, well, this morning I started at 5.30 <laughs> and I'm going to work through till 7. And she goes, so I said, oh, so essentially you're just cramming like the, the week's worth of time into four days. And she goes, well, yeah, essentially that's what I'm doing. And I thought, well, that sounds like a really unappealing thing to do. So the thing that I was keen to pick your brain about, especially because I, I use her as an example, but I noticed this in myself, is that one of the structures that I've got in place at the moment is is I've got two kids. And just because I want to spend more time with my kids at the moment, I pretty much I, I start my days um, and I'll start at about 9 or 9.30. And usually at 3.30, I'll shut the computer, I'll put my phone away and I'll take my older boy out to the skate park or do something with him. And what I quickly learned is that in my mind, there's still an infinite list of things that I would like to get done. And uh, truthfully, sometimes I find it so hard to switch off, even though I've put that schedule in place by myself. And I know that the value of family is one that long term, I'm sure, brings rewards that work probably couldn't. But in terms of getting through a list, I'm not sure that's actually possible. <laughs> and I know that even when I do eliminate some of the um, superfluous stuff from my schedule that doesn't need to be there, I'm really focused on my social media, I'll get to the end of the day. And there's just this sense of, ah, oh, man, like there should have been so much more done. And I don't really have any measuring stick for what would have been the appropriate amount of work to get done. But I have spoken to a number of people who have shared the same sentiment that even when they're really focused on eliminating the excess and even thinking about going down to a four-day work week, there's some mental residue which seems to hang around and makes it more difficult than they're used to. Mm -hmm. Have you experienced that? And and how do you sort of encourage people who have this experience to to navigate that new challenge that comes up? You know, it is what you're talking about is decades of muscle memory that have built up through schooling, through professional education, through you know our first jobs where sort of we were told. You know, where we were either told explicitly or saw through example that the way to get ahead was to burn the midnight oil, be the first one in, the last one out, you know, that, and that success these days doesn't come from, you know, clocking your hours, paying your dues and moving slowly up the ladder, but is something that happens, you know, or of quickly when you're young, when you're able to make big sacrifices, and, you know, and that's got to happen before your technical skills or your knowledge become obsolete, right? It turns into a kind of arms race against burnout. And so, you know, everybody coming into a four-day week has this set of cultural presumptions and just literally physical habits that, you know, that they, they need to kind of unwind or sort of unlearn. And I think that, you know, uh, that a couple of the keys, part of it is just time, right? Giving new habits time to form and settle and sort of be, you know, and sort of become your new default. 
part of what I think also is, you know, sort of for me, when, um, you know, one of the big discoveries that I made sort of a few years ago when I was sort of when I was writing Rest was that, you know, that was a big project, right? Every book is a big undertaking. 80,000 words, 12 month deadline, or if, you know, or if it's, uh, and there's always something else that you can do to make this paragraph or chapter or manuscript just a little bit better. And it's really hard to resist that. And I think that the, you know, that, uh, that for me, where I landed was that, um, I felt, I felt my best when I was able to work several really, no, number one, work several really focused hours per day so that by the end of the day, I really felt like, you know, I'd kind of left it all on the field. But second, I think recognizing that we live in a world in which the to-do list is infinite, right? Um, you are never finished with everything because the world just keeps piling more stuff uh, sort of on your plate. People keep, you know, sort of putting things on your calendar, et cetera. There is always more that can be done. And I think that what, you know, that, uh, that the thing that you, uh, that I have had to cultivate and which the companies that I work with work hard to figure out is sort of figuring out how to, you know, zero in on the things that absolutely matter the most, the things that they have to get done, developing the routines and the boundaries that allow them to focus really hard on those things so that they can make prog progress in a steady manner day after day. And, you know, and accept that, you know, in essence, have the faith that, or if, that, you know, this method will pay off over the course of months, even if it sometimes feels like, you know, like, you know, you really want to get it all done, you know, get it all done today. That, mm. and, you know, I have seen work, you know, working that way, you know, myself, I spent 10, it took me 10 years to finish my first book, working the way that I just described, right, in this much more sustainable manner. I've been able to write three books in 10 years. And so, you know, for me, those results speak for themselves. And I think for, you know, the organizations that I've worked with, thinking about how to sort of focus in on the things that matter most to build, you know, to build, to build routines and guardrails and boundaries that sort of, uh, that concentrate attention and time on just those things, eliminate other stuff and just trust, trust in the process and give those, give those practices time to become familiar, to become habituated. That's what you got to do, which I know is easy to, easy to say, but you know, a lot harder to do. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, eat right and exercise. Um, and yet there are giant industries for, you know, for doing both, you know, however, it's really, you know, it's like, it's that simple and that hard. Mm. I, I really like what you said about muscle memory. And I really like what you said about longevity, because I have a background in distance running. And I learned from a young age that it's not the person who runs the most or the longest, who's the fastest on race day. A lot of the time, it's the athlete who's got that ability to lay down training session after training session for a number of years mm -hmm. to build that muscle memory um, and the actual fitness and skill set to be able to go out there and, and execute on race day. So I 
I love that. And I've actually, I, I used to work with a, a guy here in Sydney who would offer some business advice. He's a lot further down the track with, um, he's sort of a, a focused on online memberships. And one of the things that he was saying was you've got to work at a pace that you can maintain for a long period of time. Because for me, one of the challenges that I, that I have is I actually love a lot of what I do. Some of it's tedious and boring, but a lot of it I get up in the morning and I'm kind of excited to run upstairs and get started with whatever I've got on the schedule for that day. So I think part of the challenge for me is, even though it's my kids that I'm <laughs> comparing to, um, it's like, no, this is fun. I don't really want to stop. It's actually almost like a hobby for me. So uh, I, I was interested to know whether that's an experience because some people go, they justify it by, no, this is what I do do for fun. I've got no other hobbies. This is my work is my hobby. Why would I stop if I'm enjoying it? Because um, I could do this for 10 years without without a break. Um, I think that the uh, or the uh, the the smart answer is that if you have found something that you really do enjoy to that degree, that the great challenge that we all have when we discover those passions is overworking them too much too early. You know, if this is something you can imagine doing your whole life, then you want to do it in a, you want to do it in a way that lets actually lets you do it for your whole life rather than or of do it in a way that risks just you know, risks ruining your health and sort of ruining that relationship. Let's say, you know, when you're like 35 or 40. And I think that, you know, that, uh, that you know, recognizing that we need, first of all, that there is value in sort of kind of banking that passion in learning to moderate it in ways that make it more sustainable make it uh, make it something that supports us rather than consumes us is sort of thing number one you know number two that um of uh and that as we continue sort of to pursue these things to get better at them it actually should be the case that we require a little less time to get the same kinds of results once we're experienced right this is you know i mean this uh, this is something that professionals, you know, this used to be the very definition of professional practice, right? Or of a good clinician could see immediately something that sort of a novice could not, you know, an experienced lawyer can see a flaw in a contract much more quickly than sort of an associate. And that's, a, you know, that's a, and we used to take that kind of skill and translate it into sort of lives and careers that, of that allowed us to pursue these things in you know or more sustainable ways and unfortunately where we've gotten to now is or of assuming that the way in which we channel that passion or of naturally is by or of uh, you know uh, is by working long uh, working long hours sort of to the point of or past the point of efficiency and exhaustion and it's, you know, there always are, you know, it can always feel rewarding to push, you know, to push yourself past, you know, sort of past your natural limits. Um, it provides a certain sense of satisfaction, but it is, you know, it may be a way to sort of, you know, to uh, sort of to win one race, to 
to, you know, take your metaphor or if, but it's not a way to build, you know, a career, whether it's as an athlete or, you know, or of, or any other kind of professional. Mm. When it comes to you and your writing, are there, because writing's a, a really interesting one. I, I look at that. I do stand up comedy outside of here and <laughs> I've got a lot of friends. My wife's a musician. And one thing that I really appreciate is that when it comes to a creative process, like writing, whether it's music, poetry, um, nonfiction, fiction, it doesn't seem to matter. There's infinite directions you can uh, take it on. And uh, one of the, the shortcomings, which is perhaps rooted in that muscle memory from decades of experience is that the only time you're making progress is when you're actually sitting down behind a computer or behind a notepad mm-hmm. and trying to work it out. But one thing that I don't know if I mentioned this to you last time, I might've, cause I, I love this story, but one thing I love from a bloke I love in Bob Dylan is that when he used to write his music, he would write down the lyrics of a, a couple of songs. And I can't remember what the two were, but in his, in his book, he was speaking about how he would finish the writing and he'd put the songs in a drawer for a couple of months and just let them talk to each other. <laughs> and I, I like that idea because the truth is I've had plenty of moments when I'm driving in my car or I'm out at the beach having a surf or whatever where a, an idea will pop into my head. I'm like, oh, that was – I wasn't doing that consciously. There was something that just happened there. So I, I like to remind myself of that because sometimes I can put myself in this prison environment where it's like, okay, sit down behind your computer and type. And maybe that's good for an hour. But then the other thing that might be good for an hour is put your computer down and your phone and go for a walk in the bush and uh, just listen to the sounds of nature and look at the water and, and just let the ideas talk to themselves or mm-hmm. talk to each other. I was keen from a, a bloke like yourself who's published three books in the last 10 years, how you navigate that process, because I know better than anyone that sometimes the message that we preach is the one we need to hear most ourselves. So uh, <laughs> you've, you've obviously spent a lot of time talking about it. And I, would, I was just curious to, to hear a little bit about the process in your own life. Right. You know, I mean, first off, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great point that, you know, what, what this speaks to is, you know, we assume that of our success in life depends upon the conscious effort and the number of hours that we put, you know, or of we put into laboring at our jobs. These sorts of moments of insight that come apparently unexpectedly, though not quite, or of I think should give us pause and make us realize that, you know, it's not just about sort of the, you know, the time we spend consciously working, but rather also time that we cult, uh, you know, that, uh, that we give to allowing our creative minds or sort of sub- our subconscious to sort of, to explore ideas, to, or of, you know, to, uh, to, uh, to try out combinations of things or, or to potential solutions that have eluded our conscious solution. And indeed, you know, some of, a lot of the people that I wrote about in rest were people who layered these in their daily lives, these periods of, you know, deep focused work, as Cal Newport would put it, with, you know, a couple hours every day of working in the garden or going on long walks or, you know, or going, you know, going for going for runs. And what that allowed them was time both to make progress on the things that you could kind of attack you know, straight on that you could sort of deal with consciously getting, you know, making progress on that thousand word a day or a quota that you might have when you're working on a book, for example, but also giving your mind time to turn, you know, to work kind of on its own. 
on things like, you know, transitions between paragraphs or how to deal with an issue at work or a piece of strategy that, you know, that you haven't been able to solve, but which if given an opportunity, your or create your creative subconscious maybe can. And, you know, so what you see in some of history's most prolific and creative people is daily schedules that uh, that give them time for both of those things. And indeed, to answer your or of your other question, this is this is something that I try to do myself. And when I'm working on a book, it's a uh, sort of this is how I, you know, how I schedule my days. I try to imitate, you know, I, I, I very much try to try to sort of imitate the people who sort of who I wrote about. So I will get up super early, like be working, be, you know, at my keyboard by like 5 a.m., put write for a couple hours, and then I'll take the, uh, take the dogs out for a really long walk. And at that point, you know, there's some stuff I've been able to work through. There usually are a couple issues that I haven't been able to solve. And while I'm out with uh, out on the walk, I carry uh, I carry a notebook with me. And as often as not, you know, you just kind of let your mind wander. The dogs, you know, they're not terribly good conversationalists, so they tend to leave me alone. <laughs> and you know, we walk and something will pop into my head, right? A, you know, or of a transition between paragraphs or some kind of an approach. And I write that down. And then when I get back home, I'll go back, I'll work for a couple more hours, work through that stuff. And that's pretty much the day for me. And then, you know, the rest of it is dealt is much less kind of cognitively demanding sort of stuff, but organize for me, organizing my writing day around those, you know, essentially a four-hour block, two four, you know, two two-hour blocks of focus time with a great big, sort uh, of with a great big break in the middle. That is uh, that allows my creative subconscious to work on its own. Is that is that's an ideal schedule for me, and it's one that follows the schedules of lots of other, you know, sort of. Lots of the, lots of the people I've written about in my current work, you know, I've got a lot of stuff where I've got like clients in Europe, clients in Asia. So I'm on the phone at like 6 a.m. And then my last Zoom call might be at, you know, 8 p.m. In the middle of the day, there's still that big break. So I can still go out with the dogs. So, but, you know, even when your, your time is less your own, I think it is possible to, you know, to craft those kinds of routines that even if they're not as perfectly attuned to like your circadian rhythms as when you have complete control over your schedule, still deliver a lot of, or of both, you know, a lot of productive benefit and, you know, or of a lot of psychological and or of physical reward as well. So that's how I do it. Yeah. Is that, is that strategic that when you go out for your walks, you're not putting the notes into your phone, you're putting it in a notebook? Cause I, I love that feeling. I'm a, I'm mm -hmm. a really big handwriter. Like I've got yeah. the, I've got the physical diary. I've never really been able to keep up to date with, I've just got notebooks all over the shop. And one of the things, one of the things is, which is uh, a little inefficient is I've probably got too many notebooks and the phone would be an easier option, but there's something about that. And it, it always sounds weird when people say it, but it's something there. I love the idea of just having a pen and paper mm -hmm. and just writing things down. It eliminates the distraction of everything else on my phone. Yeah. 
No, um, partly I can, you know, I can scribble things out faster than I can type them. Um, even if it's completely illegible, I can kind of decode, I can decode illegible handwriting more easily than I can decode something that's full of typos, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is sort of, you know, it's, it sounds weird, but there it is. And I think that there is, you know, there is, it is useful to, um, uh, uh, I think that the the most important thing you know, is actually offload this onto whatever you know piece of paper device what have you because I have absolutely had the experience where you know I have a thought and then you know it's so good I'm sure I'm going to remember it ten minutes later I'm really struggling to remember what that thing is so you write it down so that you kind of clear your mind so that you can then have the next thought. Because you can, and it's you know far more efficient to outsource that to sort of the paper than it is to try to spend the bandwidth necessary to you know to to hold it in short term memory. But for me, the notebook is you know it's partly it's it's partly about the advantage of writing things down. A little bit of it you know is aesthetic as well, um, and so you know it's it. It's, I don't think, I don't know that there is anything especially like magical or, you know, or of, uh, insightful about write, writing things down that way versus capturing them some other way. But it's the thing that works for me. And because it works for me, that's what I do. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. That's a good point. I think sometimes you get caught up. I'm not sure who I'm stealing this from. It might be Seth Godin. Um, or Stephen Hawking even. I'm not sure one of these people told this story and uh, Stephen Hawking was sitting there talking about when he writes his work, how he writes it. And one kid put up their hand and said, oh, what pencil do you use? And he goes, <laughs> in the end, I think Seth Godin did a breakdown of this where he spoke about uh, we, we forget about the element of work. We forget about the fact that it's actually having the structures and the guardrails and the actual uh, time sculpting where you sit down and you do that deep work mm -hmm. and it's got less to do with whether you're doing it with a pencil or a pen or on a computer and, and I often find that um, really encouraging when I get caught up with sort of just you know all the extra stuff that that can come in are, are you the kind of guy that uh, I know you said you've written a few books in the last decade are, are you writing pretty much on a daily basis even when you don't have books are you that kind of guy that just likes to get thoughts down on paper or have you always got some form of book in the works? Um, I will, you know, I mean, the nature of the work is that uh, I, I write a lot of stuff. And some of it is, you know, like sort of stuff for clients, short pieces, exercises, you know, sort of uh, that sort of stuff. Um, so I am always writing. Am I always writing a book? No. I mean, honestly... Um, the, I've been lucky to work on books that I felt like I couldn't get out of, you know, working, there were ideas that I couldn't get out of my system any other way. Right. Yeah. It's like they had to be books. And when one of those grabs you, then you are, that's a really fortunate state for a writer, even though it kind of disrupts your life for a while, because, it's really hard to work on anything else when, sort of, you know, when you when you get get something like that. Um, the other thing for me is that is that a book length project is a big enough investment of time 
And there are a lot of really great ideas in the world so that the book that I work on is the one that my agent is able to sell. Um, yeah. you know, yeah. or of, I write a lot of stuff, but I write the book that I know or of we can is, is actually, is actually going to see the light of day. So, um, that, you know, there's, there is for me that business calculation as well for it. For sure. For sure. That's actually an interesting process. I mean, the, the whole idea of publishing books is a whole nother conversation we could go down because my wife's actually in the process of putting together a little, uh, children's book. Ah. And what's been so funny is she's contacted a number of publishers and they're pretty much all said, look, we've got wait lists for years. Like we've got no idea who you are. Yeah. So it makes complete sense. And I can see how motivation would be a, a lot easier to muster up when you've, when you've, you know, actually done the work and been able to sell books through a publisher and got their trust as a result. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I definitely, uh, I'm not going to tell Jesse that part of the conversation because she'd be very <laughs> jealous to hear what you've created for yourself. But when it comes to the, um, the actual writing process for you. So we were saying that there's a couple of hours in the morning, then you do the mm -hmm. long break and maybe a couple of hours in the afternoon. Do you have any goal in terms of word limit in that time? Or are you just pretty much, uh, does it start off as just pretty much a, a brain dump? You're like, all right, I'm just going to do a first draft. Because one thing I do with comedy writing sometimes is, uh, and I actually haven't used it for a while, and I can't remember the name. You might know it. It's, a, a, it's an app or a website that you go to and you set the timer for, say, 30 minutes, and if you pause in that 30 minutes, it deletes the work. And the reason is obviously just to try and get rid of that uh, writer's block or whatever you want to call it or the perfectionist nature of so many of us. Um, I mean, the cheat is if you put your email into the system, they'll email it to you. But <laughs> still. <laughs> so, yeah, it's still scary to see that work disappear. Um, I was just yeah curious to hear about the actual process. Is the first one just a brain dump before the edit or how do you structure the writing time? Right. Okay. So in terms of writing versus editing, you know, there's the, uh, Lewis Brandeis said, there is no good writing, only, only good rewriting. So, <laughs> you know, sort of ex get the first draft out, accept that it might be, you know, sort of it might be rubbish, but the fact is that it's a lot easier to get to something good from there than it is from sort of a blank page. Number two, sort of in terms of my own process, um, one of the virtues of sort of having an agent and a contract and all of that stuff is, you know, when you, when you pitch a book, you, you have to submit a, a pretty detailed outline of the chapters and their contents and so forth. And having worked as a consultant for, you know, any number of years, my habit is to treat that outline essentially as a contract with and my publisher is like my client. And so that gives me amazing clarity about what I'm going to do. Uh, um, it's best. So I've specified each chapter is X number of thousands of words. There's an answer right there. You know, I've got X, you know, Y amount of time to do it. Divide, you know, it's simple division and you end up with X number of words per day that you're trying to write. I don't always get there. But, you know, uh, but I've got a pretty clear goal in terms of the amount that I'm trying to write. And I also have or of a structure already in place that I am writing kind of writing within. For me, that is important because I'm one of those people who can spend enormous amounts of time playing around with, all right, well, what if I move chapter two and make it chapter four? Or what if I tell the story backwards? Or if, you know, there are a thousand and one different literary choices you can make that might make a, make a book incrementally better. 
for me, the more useful thing is to say, all right, I've got this structure and I'm going to write the best book I possibly can, given this agreement, given this amount of time and this amount of space. And that, and for me, those are constraints. Those are boundaries, once again, that turn out to be liberating for me rather than constraining, right? They keep me from you know, from spending a lot of time on stuff that ultimately is probably not going to be that productive or yield much, uh, much in the way of improvement and keeps me focused on generating that first draft that can, you know, sort of that bird, bad first draft that maybe can be finally, you know, later turn into or of uh, a good final manuscript. And so, you know, for me, I think that that is, uh, you know, sort of, for me, one of the things that made the difference between writing a book in 10 years and writing three books in 10 years was sort of the, was that, you know, discovering that those constraints and guardrails turn out to make me a better writer and a more productive writer. I think the other thing is that you write the best book you can in the time that you have, and you don't worry about it being perfect, especially these days in the publishing world where we just have enormous amounts of talent in the world, for better or worse, and a lot of people writing a lot of books. And we have no control, even less than we ever did, over how successful these books are going to be, whether they are going to have long shelf lives or whether they're going to be forgotten. We just, you know, as authors, we don't know and we don't have the kind of power in the world or have to sway them in one direction or another, not even, you know, and publishers are not even, or have, are operating in a world that is harder, you know, for them too to understand. So I think, you know, what that, what, what that tells me is don't spend time trying to make this book absolutely perfect, right? You're not building the pyramids. What you're doing, think of it, think of it more like, you're putting on a really good dinner party for people and you want them to be, you know, you want them to have a good experience. You want them to sort of think fondly about you. And that is success, right? A dinner party that lasts 50 years is not necessarily a success. You know, it's okay. You know, or if you do the work, you enjoy the work and it's okay if, you know, or if, uh, if it doesn't sell a million copies or, you know, sort of get assigned in college classes, you know, sort of, you know, decades from now. Um, mm. That, you know, that might happen, but probably, but it's, but it's not going to happen because you spent that little extra time trying to decide, you know, deciding that actually chapter two really should be chapter four. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good point. One of the things I was, uh, and this has just been blowing my mind this week, and uh, I'll, I'll bring it up to you because I'm curious to hear from people who are writing on the regular um, and just how they respond to this. My, my wife got home the other day, and after a couple of months of me hearing about this chat dot, dot GPT, mm. this AI thing, mm -hmm. she gave me a little demonstration of how it can put together blog articles or uh, chapters or overviews. And I was overwhelmed because I was like, as a part, I, I do some running coaching outside of this. And as a part of my running coaching, I, I regularly write blog posts and mm -hmm. or even just put together, um, you know, what I think is an okay blog post to summarize the idea that I've been speaking about, whether it's in a podcast or a YouTube video or whatever. 
I put it in a couple of these blog post titles into this chat.gpt and in 15 seconds it had put together a, a blog post which I mean if I put together my best blog post in a couple of hours and put it next to that it it already wins and I know it's in its early days of development which is sort of scary but in terms of what I'm trying to achieve with that, I mean, it's fine because my idea is just to summarize something, not necessarily develop more of an education on it with, with a lot of things that I'm talking about. But with some people, when it comes to this kind of stuff, I'm interested to know what impact that has on sort of the creative process or the, the enthusiasm, motivation to actually sit down and write. Mm-hmm. Because if it can get done in 15 seconds to a pretty close degree that what we might be able to do, why not do that? And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden, uh, you, I mean, I was about to ask another question. I'll throw that to you first, and then I'll, I'll follow it up with what I was about to say. Sure. You know, I can personally, I can see enormous value in having a system like that to help deal with kind of what you might think of as kind of sort of routine, routine writing, right? Answering emails, scheduling things, even sort of writing sort of first simple descriptions that you know, summarize, uh, sort of scientific experiments, let's sort of, let's say, um, the, you know, what I would love, I don't, what I would be to have a chat GPT system where I could feed it everything I've written, right. And all my, you know, sort of everything from sort of Evernote, all my, you know, stuff from the notebooks and so forth, so that it would write like me as opposed to writing like, you know, the the concatenation of sort of hundreds of millions of anonymous texts or have it write in the style of, you know, Raymond Chandler or Cormac McCarthy or what have you. Now, I don't I don't really need an invitation email written in the style of, you know, sort of of Jean Le Carré. Um, I need it. You know, if it's coming from me, it really ought to sound like me. And I think that the you know, that. There are, you know, if it is stuff, if it's something that we have control over, right, as individual creators, you can see how this could be, you know, potentially or of you know, very beneficial and could free up more time for us to work on like the more intensively creative, higher value added sort of work. Um, if on the other hand, you know, it is, and a not you know some anonymous company who's taking everything that you have written, putting it into mm-hmm. you know sort of their system so that they can produce a version of you and you know sort of and sell that and get the benefit. Then you know clearly that's that's a that's a system in which sort of you lose out. But you know I think having a general system, you know the things. I think that the things that are imp- that are kind of most eye-catching about ChatGPT right now, like its ability to write things in the voice of someone, these are interest these are interesting as parlor tricks, but that's not going to be the reason that you use it a year from now, right? It's uh, sort of it's going to be useful because you figured out how to tell it to do, you know, to do things that require maybe a few steps or a certain amount of thinking that and you need it in a sense to kind of think or write like you and it can now do that mm-hmm. once it gets to that stage then we're talking about something that i think a lot of us would actually you know 
pay some real money or to sort of to use and which would improve our work and our lives. Yeah, I was thinking it's so lucky that I don't go to university these days because with my attitude at university, <laughs> there would have never been one essay written, especially with its ability to dodge plagiarism. <laughs> but uh, apparently I was talking to a friend the other day and he said pretty much the week after it was released, there was some software which was able to do a pretty good job of detest detecting that it's not your work and my wife being a school teacher said the same thing with year nine it's um i mean you can have a chat to a year nine kid and pretty quickly realize that he hasn't <laughs> put his article on world war ii together so i mean there's some general scaffolding that we can use to, to navigate plagiarism and things like that but it's going to be uh interesting to to watch it unwind over the next couple of years and i mean what i like about is I've got such an appreciation for the old school. Like even now, Spotify being a thing, I, I still appreciate like a record cover or like music coming from a record. And I'm not sure if that's the part of me that just loves the notepad. And it's the same way that I, I love uh, hard copy books, just sitting down with that. I've got Audible, but every now and then I like just to sit back and use that. So I think the romantic side of me uh, wants to see this thing crash and burn. <laughs> but the, um, but the, the other side of me is like the, the, the areas that I love, like stand-up comedy and um, listening to a bloke like Cormac McCarthy when he writes or, um, uh, you know, whether it's music, a lot of those things, they, they actually can't be taken out because you've still got to perform it to, to your own capacity, especially with sort of that, that live performance or conversation. So, yeah, right. it'd be really interesting to see what it is used for in the next couple of years. Yeah. You know, I think what of with teaching, if it meant, if, you know, if the prevalence of chat GPT meant fewer papers and more FaceTime, um, you know, or of less writing by some students and more sort of testing that involved helping them learn to think on their feet, that's actually not a bad outcome at all, I think, or of as, as someone, as someone who has taught in universities and read more than their share of papers, um, you know, I know there absolutely were some of those students who probably would have thrived under a system in which, you know, dem in which, you know, standing up and demonstrating your intelligence in a 20 minute conversation would have been less stressful and sort of more, you know, sort of and sort of more meaningful for them than you know, having to write another 10-page paper. So mm. uh, I think we'll figure it out. It is interesting. It's interesting how just developments like this all of a sudden start to throw a couple of curveballs at teachers, at lecturers, um, at the corporate scene to, to navigate uh, maybe some of the shortcomings that have been in place for a long time. Because, I, I mean, you don't have to be a genius to know that a lot of people have question the way we do a lot of these modern structures, especially in school mm -hmm. when it comes to challenging how much a, a kid's learnt. So, yeah, it's a good point that you make. Like I, I personally feel like I would have been one of those people who, I, I don't know if it was the pressure or just my ability to write in the structure that they were expecting, but I always felt like a conversation might have been a better way for, for what I knew to to come out, but also to be formed and challenged. And, um, yeah, it's sort of exciting when you, you think of all the prospects. But I guess maybe next time we chat, there'll be a, a, a few more developments that we can riff on <laughs> and, uh, and speculate on from there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, who knows? It might be that sort of I'll just send my chat GPT and it can, you know, it can, <laughs> it can speak for me. I doubt it though, yeah. but I, I really hope not because I, uh, I enjoy it unless it's a really good one and it's, uh, it's passing as a real Alex Peng, but man, that was, uh, that was great. I really appreciate you stopping by and giving me the time and uh, a bit of an education, some thoughts and, and just the company. It's always, always fun sitting down with you and, and picking your brain about, I mean, there's a variety of things. I, I feel like we could have gone in the direction of architecture and minimalism and um, at book writing and, and anything else creative. But, you know, from the concoction of what we put together, I always leave feeling like I've learned a lot. So, man, thanks a lot for being here. 
Oh, thanks very much for having me, Tyson. See you again in a couple of years.